Hi, this is Leonie from The Psychonauts, the podcast that trips into the realm of psychedelic psychiatry as hallucinogenic mushrooms go on trial in South Africa. This short voice diary entry is to give a quick summary of how I see psilocybin-assisted therapy being introduced here into South Africa, particularly in a context where so many people don't have experience with psychedelics, and also where the public mental health care system is so grossly under-resourced. If you've been following this podcast from the start, you might have picked up that there's a fairly convincing body of evidence coming out of places in the US and the UK that says that psilocybin is a kind of breakthrough medical technology for treating mood disorders and addictions. Now, psilocybin is the hallucinogenic compound that puts the magic in magic mushrooms. Some medical researchers are even saying that psilocybin is for mental health treatment what the discovery of penicillin was as an antibiotic a century ago. They're also saying it's like a surgical procedure for mental illness. Instead of putting someone on a long course of medication to treat their depression or their anxiety, you go in with one or two sessions with this drug, like a few hours of surgery, and effectively rewire the brain in a way that the benefits seem to last for months afterwards. In fact, if the chatter in the therapeutic community in the U.S. is anything to go by, some of these substances, like psilocybin and a few other psychedelics, could be licensed for medical use within just five years. So it's coming our way for sure. And if the 2018 High Court case here in the Western Cape, which aims to legalize psilocybin, if that court case is successful, it could pave the way for the therapeutic introduction even sooner than that. So what needs to happen in order to bring psilocybin-assisted therapy to South Africa? Well, obviously, we need the laws to be changed. We need psilocybin to be legalized, and we need it to be licensed for medical use. Episode 2 of the podcast looks at the court bid that will start in 2018, and which hopefully will pave the way for the legalization of psilocybin mushrooms. Then, of course, the medical community needs to get on board. They need to get up to speed with how to weave this specific form of therapy into their everyday therapy methods. Episode 6 is going to go into that in a little bit more detail. I'm busy writing that at the moment. And then, of course, we'd need the state to roll out the therapy process through the public mental health care system. And here's why I think it's so important. Episode 3 and 4 look at the extent of trauma experienced by most South Africans and why we have such high rates of depression, anxiety, alcoholism, suicide and violence. It's got a lot to do with our really abusive colonial and apartheid past and how they have created a violent and brutal form of poverty that leaves so many people broken and traumatised. And of course the communities who are most at risk are the ones who have lowest access to mental health support. In episode 3, you may remember there's a case study of Diepsluit, a slum community on the edge of Johannesburg. And in many ways, this community typifies what so many South African cities are like for so many of us, where kids are born into such extreme levels of deprivation and want. A group of researchers visited Diepsluit because they wanted to understand the extent of gender-based violence there. In the process, they interviewed about 2,600 men, and found that over 50% of these men said that in the previous year they had raped or sexually assaulted a woman, and many of them had done so more than once. These figures are shocking. 
But when the researchers drilled down a bit to try and understand why these men were so violent, their work paints a really powerful picture of the fact that these young men had all suffered abuse and trauma as boys. What I mean by that is not just the act of violence of being beaten by a drunken father or bullied at school or knifed on the way to the corner shop. I also mean the passive violence of neglect and abandonment and being left wanting, the perpetual stress of poverty. There's a lot of research to show that there's a link between that kind of stress and mood disorders and the self-medicating behaviour that drives, for instance, alcohol abuse later in life. These young men who lack impulse control when they're older, they'd been exposed to incredible levels of trauma and perpetual stress as young boys. The men that the researchers interviewed in the study, who had been involved in so much violence, these were men who were depressed. They had very little job prospects, they drank heavily, they felt impotent at an existential level. How do people deal with depression and anxiety and what feels like being in a perpetual state of post-traumatic stress? They self-medicate, they lash out at others. Now, I've been looking at some of the models that are being used overseas to treat these kinds of conditions, and I think they could be introduced here fairly easily through the public health care system. The first model is a legal one, and it's being used by medical schools at places like Johns Hopkins in the United States and Imperial College London. The second is a model that's being used by an underground psychedelic community in the US. It's not quite legal yet, but it might be soon. Okay, so the first model. This is being used by these medical schools where the research groups have been licensed by their respective governments to do clinical trials in the use of psilocybin and MDMA, that's ecstasy on the street, in conjunction with conventional therapy methods. Basically, they take in volunteers with treatment-resistant depression or post-traumatic stress disorder. And these are people who've been unresponsive to prescription medications or forms of talk therapy. They put these people through a 12-week program where most of the work is just normal one-on-one talk therapy. These weekly sessions are to prepare them for and then help them integrate just two dosing sessions where the person takes the hallucinogen psilocybin. The first session involves taking roughly the equivalent of about 2 grams of dried magic mushrooms per 70 kilograms of body weight. Now, in an earlier episode, I go into a little bit more detail about how precisely this um, dosing is calculated. But essentially, in the clinical setting, the person is given about 10 milligrams of lab-synthesized psilocybin to 70 kilograms of body weight which I later then calculate as the equivalent of about 2 grams of dried mushrooms, the kind you'd buy on the street. But bear in mind that you get very high variances of the strength of psilocybin in the dried mushrooms. So it's not a very precise measure. I'm just putting this bit of detail in so that you can get a rough scale. In the second session, this is usually a week or so later, the participants then take the equivalent of what would be about 4 grams of dried magic mushrooms per 70 kilograms of body weight. To be precise, the exact dose in the clinical setting is 25 milligrams of lab-synthesized psilocybin, which is what Dr. Derek May from the Johns Hopkins team says will be the dose range when this becomes medicine. Not if it becomes medicine, but when. And if you listen to earlier episodes, you may remember that the dose which most of the South Africans are taking on these ceremonial mushroom journeys is about 5 grams of dried mushrooms. 
And that isn't necessarily adjusted to body size. They jokingly call this the hero's dose. Okay, so back to the clinical trials. The participants in this process are just doing two dosing sessions on the drug. They do it in a comfortable, safe, lounge-type environment. They have two therapists sitting with them throughout. They wear eye masks and they listen to music because that's really integral to this sort of internal journey that happens while people are on the psychedelic trip. And this is what's remarkable about this form of therapy. Because it's the subjective experience you have while you're in that psychedelic state that results in such positive mood and behavior changes that last for months after the substance has left the body. With normal antidepressants or anti-anxiety meds, for instance, or the prescription medication used for treating alcohol and nicotine dependence, you have to keep the substance in your body at a constant level in order for it to work. With a lot of these medications, that means, for instance, taking a tablet every day for years. But with psilocybin, you just have two dosing sessions, just two, and the effects seem to last for months. This is why the medical community is saying that it's like a surgical procedure rather than uh, prescribing long-term drug treatment. The psychedelic state allows people to make sense of their stories, their place in the world. It's similar to doing talk therapy, but it just it's like several years of therapy wrapped up into one four-hour session. But it does need to be done in the right space, with sober, trained people as companions throughout, and in a very safe, comfortable environment. That's critical. Okay, let's take a look at the second model. This is one that's being used by an organization in the United States called Veterans for Entheogenic Therapy. They're taking U.S. war veterans down to Costa Rica or Peru, where they go on a retreat and have several days of exposure to ayahuasca. That's the hallucinogenic brew made from plants that are indigenous to the Andes and work in a very similar way to psilocybin mushrooms. After the retreat, the men return home and for a year, they plug into a network of different organizations, whichever is nearest to them in their hometown, that allows them different ways to integrate. This is integrating the healing process from the retreat itself, as well as sort of integrating back into society. These could be organizations that offer equine therapy or canine therapy or a support network of other veterans on standby. I reckon it would be pretty easy to blend these two models together into a South African context. You could train up nurses and counselors in the public health care system in this specific method of therapy. Obviously, they'd need to understand the psychedelic process themselves, and then they would have to learn the basics of sitting with people through the experience, rather than trying to talk or guide them through it. Bizarre as this might sound, there are a lot of people in the underground psychedelic community who are pretty skilled in this already, this specific kind of psychedelic support. As far as the drugs, well, in terms of cost, it would be pretty cheap. Lab-synthesized psilocybin is very expensive, but dried mushrooms aren't expensive at all. Just two dosing sessions using a total of six grams of powdered mushrooms per person would cost hmm, about 600 rand. That's it. And of course, this would create jobs in the public health sector. And the drugs would be really affordable. You could even get your local vegetable grower to handle that side of things. It's not that different to growing culinary mushrooms. You just need to make sure that your growth medium is super sterile so that you don't lose your crop to pathogens. And then, of course, the people coming through this program 
Afterwards, they could link up with local civil society organisations that could help with the integration of that post-counselling process. Now, in many South African contexts, like, you know, the community in Dipsert, it might not be culturally or financially appropriate to have equine or canine therapy, but you could set up soccer clubs or carpentry workshops or sewing groups, for instance, where people could get together and learn a craft or play a sport while talking through all the stuff they have to deal with in life and work through everything that they've encountered on those psychedelic trips. It's just a thought. If this kind of medicine is legalised here, then the therapeutic community has a lot of catching up to do. These are interesting times indeed.